welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Jesus told the people who had faith in Him, If you keep on obeying what I have said, you truly are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Contemporary English Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, welcoming you to another episode of Anchored by Truth. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, as we continue our wrap-up of the series that we are calling A Flood of Truth. This is actually the ninth episode of our Flood of Truth series. Obviously, since we have devoted this much time to a single episode in the Bible, we must think that it's a pretty important episode. Why do you believe that the Bible's flood account merits this much attention, R.D.? Well, greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. You know, in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we mentioned that there are many biblical accounts of historical events that have left few, if any, details behind that we can investigate effectively today. For instance, in Daniel chapter 3, we have the famous account of Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, being thrown into a fiery furnace. Hanai, Misrael, and Azariah were, of course, their Hebrew names. Their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those were the names that were actually used in chapter 3. Yes. Anyway, the account of Daniel's three friends refusing to bow down and worship the golden image of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, it's an amazing story of faith and trust in God, the same kind of faith that Noah displayed, but we would have very little hope of being able to validate the details of the story through archaeological artifacts or historical records that we would find today, especially extra-biblical records. And we certainly aren't going to see any geological evidence of that kind of a story. Now, uh, we can validate some of the broad parameters of the account, such as the fact that the Babylonians did, in fact, conquer the Jews and send the Hebrew people into exile. And we have abundant historical evidence that Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king who conquered the Jews, as well as many other Mideastern nations at the time. And we have evidence that was common for kings of the day to demand that they be worshipped as deities. But it's almost impossible that we would ever find specific confirmation of the event recorded in Daniel chapter 3 today. It's just very unlikely we're going to find any specific artifacts that would point directly to that event as having occurred. But if you have a worldwide flood that dramatically changes, reduces the size of the human and animal populations on the earth, well, that kind of an event does produce effects, evidence, that we can still see today. So there is contemporary evidence that the Bible's account of the flood can be shown to be a reliable report of literal history. This makes it a forceful demonstration of the Bible's historical accuracy, notwithstanding the amazing nature of the story. 
This in turn makes the story the target of Bible critics. If the critic can show that the Bible flood account isn't historically reliable, it would have implications for the reliability of the rest of Scripture. If doubt can be cast on the story of Noah, by extension, doubt can be cast on the reliability of the rest of the Bible. Exactly. So, this elevates the stakes in how you view the historicity of the biblical flood account. And that's one of the reasons we've devoted a considerable amount of time to studying this account, because we want listeners to gain a solid appreciation of the many facts and observations that they can use to assure themselves that the flood story in the Bible is trustworthy, and by extension, that the opening chapters of Genesis, as well as the rest of the Bible, that those chapters of Genesis and the Bible is trustworthy. So the flood account in the Bible, assuring ourselves of the historicity, takes on an added bit of importance, if you will, to our faith, to the content of our faith, and to the trust that we can place in our faith. And today, you want to begin a summary and review of many of the facts that we've learned during the series, not only to reinforce our listeners' awareness, but also to give them an easy reference guide for future study. Exactly. People are busy today, probably in many cases too busy. But we should never be so busy that we don't take the time to ensure that we are properly preparing ourselves and our families for eternity. Now, obviously, becoming very familiar with the Bible is one of the most important ways that we can do that. The Bible is very clear that the Bible is the one authentic, true source of permanence that we have on this earth. In fact, it was Jesus himself who said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, and in Psalm 119, the writer tells us that God's justice is eternal, and God's laws last forever. That's actually an astounding thought. The heavens and earth are one day going to pass away, but God's word and his laws will not. So, the one way we can firmly grasp eternity in the here and now is to become thoroughly familiar with God's law and word, with the special revelation God has given us in the Bible. Exactly. So what I want to do starting today is to give listeners a baker's dozen of concrete pieces of evidence. That's a little bit of a mixed metaphor, a baker's dozen of concrete pieces, with my apologies to all the bakers in the land. But I want to give some concrete pieces of evidence that demonstrate the Bible flood account may be reasonably accepted as literal history. You know, essentially there are two truth claims about the flood that are fundamentally at odds with one another. The Bible's flood account is either a record of literal history, or it's not. Now, if you believe that the Bible's flood account is not literal history, then it doesn't much matter whether you think it's allegory, myth, or fairy tale. What matters is that if you believe that the Bible's flood account is fictional, that becomes a reflection of how you think about the Bible, and unfortunately, it becomes a reflection of how you think about Jesus. Why Jesus? Because Jesus affirmed the historicity of the flood account when Jesus compared his return at some point in the future to the conditions that existed on earth at the time the flood occurred. You're referring to Matthew, chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. The New Living Translation reads like this, quote, 
When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Yes. Your point is that the Bible is clear that Jesus is going to make a literal return to the earth at some point in the future. So it would make no sense for Jesus to use a fictional event as the symbol for what will be the second most important event in human history. The most important event being the crucifixion and resurrection. Well, in my opinion, certainly the most important event in human history to this date has got to be the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Well, when you're judging between those two choices, myth or history, I think that people can do best to make an informed judgment if they have some concrete data points that they can absorb firmly and then rely on. So, what is your first data point? Well, the first major idea, big idea that people should grasp is that the ark, as described by the Bible, was suitable for its intended purpose. So, data point number one is that the ark had the size to carry eight people and a huge cargo of animals that included two of every kind of animal on earth. And as we've emphasized throughout the series, a biblical kind is not equal to a current species. It's a much broader category of taxonomic classification. Yes. The exact size of the ark is dependent on how long a cubit was in Noah's day. But most scholars believe that it was between 18 inches and 24 inches. Now, as Dr. Jonathan Sarfati has pointed out in his Genesis commentary, which is entitled The Genesis Account, even using the smallest estimate for a cubit, the ark would have had the capacity to transport at least 19,000 sheep even if we applied contemporary animal transport regulations. Now, in his book, An Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, Dr. Gleason Archer used a 24-inch cubit, and he estimated that the Ark had a cargo capacity of 2,000 railroad cars, each of which could hold more than 80 sheep. So the actual size of the Ark is most likely somewhere in between those two estimates. But in any case, it was a huge ship and adequate for carrying thousands of animals. And of course, most of the animals that would have been on board would not have been anywhere near the size of a sheep. Noah was told to bring birds, and there's only a few bird species on the planet anywhere near the size of a sheep, and Noah would not have to bring adults. A young pair that could start breeding in a year would have been sufficient. Yes. Dr. Sarfati estimates that the average size of the animals on board the ark would have only been about the size of the rabbit. And Dr. Archer noted that even today, there are only a couple of hundred species of land animals that are larger than a sheep. So data point number one is that the ark had the size to do the job. Data point number two is that the dimensions of the ark specified to Noah make sense to produce a very stable ocean-going vessel. Genesis chapter 6 Verse 15 in the New International Version records God telling Noah, quote, This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high, unquote. So, the ark was to be six times as long as it was wide. This ratio is a classic ratio used by building large ships because it produces a vessel that is stable on the open ocean. 
It's still used today as the starting point for modern ship design. Right. Stability against overturning is one of the primary qualities that affects the safety of a ship in a seaway. You've got to have enough overturning stability to prevent the ship from capsizing due to the healing moment that's caused by the wind and the waves. So the dimensions that are given in the Bible for the ark produce a vessel that is extremely stable in an ocean-going environment. And scale model tests in wave tanks have suggested that the ark could endure wave heights of more than 100 feet high without capsizing. Those tests were done in the early 1990s in the Korea Research Institute of Ship and Engineering's large towing tank. And that tank has a wave generation system capable of simulating the kinds of conditions that might have been in a very tempestuous environment. And it's noteworthy that these dimensions appear in the Bible. Conservative Bible scholars have always agreed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which of course includes Genesis, even acknowledging that Moses had received an excellent education in the house of Pharaoh, neither the Egyptians nor the Hebrews were a seafaring people. Of course, the Egyptians were very familiar with rivers and building crafts for use on the Nile. Because of the differences in operating conditions, the design of vessels used on rivers generally differs from those that are used on open oceans. So, in a way, it's remarkable that design details that appear in the Genesis account are so well suited to a boat that could survive rough conditions on an open ocean. Right. And that brings us to data point number three that demonstrate the reasonability of the biblical flood account, the pitch. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 14, one of the details Noah was given was to coat the ark with pitch, inside and out. Now, some critics allege that this detail was an anachronism because pitch is made from petroleum, and in Noah's day, petroleum was unknown. But pitch doesn't have to be made from petroleum. In this case, the pitch that Noah used wasn't probably made from petroleum or tar, but it was probably some combination of tree sap or resin mixed with charcoal that had been made from downed trees. Pitch was made like that for centuries and used in the production of ocean-going ships. Now, of course, most listeners will think that the pitch was used to seal the hull against leaks, and that was certainly part of it. But Noah was instructed to coat the ark with pitch both inside and out. And experiments have shown that a good strong wood, like either cypress or acacia wood or whatever it was, coated on both sides with this kind of a pitch would have had very good impact resistance. Now, this impact resistance would have been a critical feature when debris of all kinds would have been being tossed around by rough winds and tough seas, especially during the early part of the flood. Okay, so there are three data points that are very easy to understand. The ark had the size, stability, and strength to do the job. What's the fourth point? Well, point number four is that the other incidental details provided in one very brief paragraph in Genesis chapter 6 also make perfect sense in the real world. Noah was told to build the ark with three decks. Now, this makes sense not only because it increases the cargo capacity of the ark, but it also makes sense from a load distribution standpoint. More weight being stored lower down in the ark would have enhanced its stability against capsizing and overturning. Lower decks would have been a good place to keep the elephants and the dinosaurs, wouldn't they? And keeping their food down there would have put the food near the animals as well as providing good ballast. Yes, and as the food was used up, 
waste would have built up that would have partially replaced the lost weight of eating the food. There's a farming technique used in some Dutch farms called the potstall. Now, the potstall means that during the winter, the farmer doesn't clean out the waste that the animals are producing. The farmer just keeps putting fresh absorbent material, such as sawdust, shavings, or peat moss, into the stalls. Now, this not only dries out the waste quickly, but it helps to keep the odor down. Then the farmer cleans out the whole barn during the spring, and that's the only time that the odor becomes really bad is during the clean-out. Well, the Ark was a one-trip boat, so there would have been no need to plan for future voyages, so no need to do a big clean-out of the boat. Also remember that in Genesis chapter 6, Noah was told to leave a one-cubit opening below the roof of the Ark. Now, this didn't mean that Noah was to create a gaping hole in the ark, because in chapter 8 of Genesis, we're told that Noah opened a window to let a raven and dove fly out, but basically what Noah was doing was creating a series of windows, and this series of windows would have allowed not only some fresh air in when conditions permitted, but it would have helped manage the heat load from the ark's passengers, both animal and human. So, details that seem to be almost incidental notes in the larger narrative are actually very sensible in the real world. The three decks added to the room for the animal passengers and the opening below the roof would provide ventilation for keeping the heat load down. Actually, the heat created by the passengers may have been welcome in a world where overcast skies persisted for 40 days and gale-like winds were blowing outside. So, the boat described by the Bible makes far more sense than the one that is described by a different flood story, the Epic of Gilgamesh. In that epic, the boat described was supposed to be a perfect cube, with six decks. It's hard to imagine a boat shape that would be less seaworthy. Yes, a cube-shaped vessel on the open water would roll and capsize in even modest winds or waves. And that's why no real seagoing vessels, either modern or historic, river or ocean that we have ever found have been built using a cube as a basic design. Just to further contrast the biblical account of the flood with the Gilgamesh epic, the time periods that are described by the Bible are reasonable. The time periods that are described by the Gilgamesh epic are not reasonable. The Bible says that Noah and his family spent just over a year in the ark. That was a long period of time to be in a boat, obviously. But you had to have time for the waters to rise enough to cover the entire earth. And of course, the waters persisted on the surface of earth for some period of time. And then the waters finally began to abate. Well, just the time that it took for the waters to continue to dry off the land, that was a period of several months. So in total, the Bible records that Noah and his family, and the animals of course, spent more than a year on the ark. Now, by contrast, the supposed worldwide flood in the Gilgamesh epic lasted for only a week. So the fourth of our 13 data points that demonstrate the Bible account is trustworthy and makes sense in the real world is that even the seemingly incidental details of the flood account make sense. Where do we go from here? Well, in our first four data points, if you will, we've seen that the ark's description in the Bible is consistent with the real world. So let's move on from point four to point five. To start point five, let's begin to take a look at whether the Earth's surface contains evidence that at one point in history, water covered the entire surface of the Earth. Now it turns out when you do that, there is abundant evidence that at one point, the highest mountains on the Earth were in fact submerged. 
fossils of marine creatures have been found in limestone near the summit of Mount Everest. So obviously if you find fossils of marine creatures near the summit of Mount Everest, that means that that part of Mount Everest, which is the highest mountain on earth above sea level, must have been under the sea at some point in the past. And pretty much all scientists agree that the top of Everest was, at one point in our distant past, under the sea. But many people do not associate these rocks and fossils with Noah's flood because they think there is not enough water to cover the highest mountains. Moreover, secular geologists insist that even though the mountains were underwater at one point in the distant past, they are now all well above sea level because the uplifting forces that have been pushing them up for millions of years. But, as we have discussed during this series, there is plenty of water to cover all of the Earth. Even one of Charles Darwin's colleagues, Alfred Russell Wallace, did a calculation in his day, this is going back to the middle of the 19th century, and his calculation revealed that there would be enough water on the Earth if the Earth's surface was smoothed out, water would actually cover the entire Earth up to a depth of two miles. Now, we have better measurement technology today for not only the height of the mountains above the Earth, but also the depth of the sea valleys below the surface of the ocean. So we now know that the right number was not quite two miles, but it was pretty close to one and two-thirds miles. So if you smoothed out the entire Earth's surface, it'd be about one and two-thirds miles underwater. Now, the contention that uplift forces have been acting on mountain ranges for millions of years may recognize the fact that there are uplifting forces in action, but it completely ignores the effect of erosions. Mountains, such as Mount Everest, must have formed fairly quickly and recently, otherwise they would have eroded as quickly as they formed. So, just because a mountain is being pushed up doesn't mean it stays at that height, because as we all well know, wind, rain, other factors, sunlight, that erosion is a continuous process on the entire surface of the earth. So even a very, very, very gradual level, if those mountains were millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of years old, they would have eroded down. They would be perfectly smooth. Well, as an example of how quickly seemingly mature environments can appear, there's an island called Surtsey that was formed in only days from a huge undersea volcanic eruption off Iceland in the North Atlantic in 1963. Within a few months, geologists exploring Surtsey found that it contained wide sandy beaches, gravel banks, impressive cliffs, soft undulating land, gullies and channels, and boulders that were almost round on an abrasive platform cut into the cliff. Moreover, within a few years, the island was covered with vegetation, and in less than two decades, it had an abundant insect and bird population. Exactly. So point number five is that there is clear evidence that the highest mountains on Earth were underwater at one time, and that it does not necessarily take millions of years to form landscapes that can seem very mature, very old. Now, point six is that there is additional evidence of extensive flooding all over the Earth. Sedimentary rock is the kind of rock that is formed underwater. Well, there are sedimentary rock formations on all the continents of the Earth that cover thousands, in some cases tens of thousands of square miles, and these sedimentary rock formations can be hundreds of feet deep. If you're going to have a sedimentary rock layer formed that's hundreds of feet deep, well, that was a heck of a lot of material that was being carried about. So if it was going to be that much material, then there had to be, well, just an enormous amount of water that was in motion. 
Not only that, but these sedimentary rock formations often have layers, and we know that these kind of layers can be formed by the laminar flow of water that is carrying material and then slowing down. And these layers are clearly visible in a number of places around the world, including the Grand Canyon, right? Right. Now, anyone who has seen the Grand Canyon has to be impressed both with the scale of the layers and how smooth they are. And this brings us to point seven, which is that the geological evidence is not limited to just the presence of massive layers of sedimentary rock. Geologists also today acknowledge that many of the great river valleys all over the world were created by truly epic floods. David R. Montgomery, who is a geology professor at the University of Washington, labeled the floods that created these river valleys Noah-like in a 2012 article he did for Discover Magazine. And in that same article, Montgomery noted that the first geologist to propose that the river valleys of eastern Washington state were caused by such floods was a gentleman named J. Harlan Bretz. Now, when Bretz initially announced the results of his findings, he was met with widespread disbelief. Bretz actually proposed that idea in the 1920s. Yet today, the truth of Bretz's observations is so widespread that at the age of 97, J. Harlan Bretz was awarded the Geological Society of America's highest honor. And the evidence of these ancient flood-carved landscapes is not limited to North America. It's also found in Europe and Asia. So the conclusion is that the Bible's account is consistent with scientific observations of the Earth and life on Earth. And for anyone who would like to investigate this topic more thoroughly, we are including several helpful links to the podcast notes that will be available through most major podcast apps. We would also recommend visiting the website for Creation Ministries International at creation.com. Next time, we're going to complete this review of a baker's dozen of specific facts that listeners can absorb fairly readily to build their own faith in the flood record reported by the Bible. Do you have any final thoughts for today? Yes. By their very nature, most past events, especially those of the distant past, like the flood of Noah, cannot be repeated. And frankly, we don't want the flood of Noah to be repeated. So, to make intelligent assessments about whether such a flood ever took place, we have to look at the evidence that is available today. And as we have consistently reminded everyone throughout this series, All investigators, all interpreters of evidence bring a viewpoint. They bring a lens through which they interpret the evidence. So people trying to decide whether there was ever a worldwide flood need to examine the evidence for themselves and make their own decisions. People need to make up their own minds. A lens that reflects the Bible's historicity is different from a lens that accepts it. There is plenty of specific evidence that demonstrates that the biblical flood account can be reasonably accepted as literal history. Bible critics may doubt this is true, but their doubt is just that, doubt, and doubt is not evidence. Sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for people who rush to help when we get in trouble, our nation's first responders. Anyone who has ever been helped by a first responder knows how very important they are in our lives and communities. We should all be grateful. A prayer for first responders. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we come to you because you are a great God and a merciful God. Lord, we seek your face and your favor for our brothers and sisters who today selflessly perform jobs 
where they place the health and safety of others above their own. We are so grateful, Lord, that in our community and in every community in our nation, there are brave men and women willing to serve as police officers, firefighters, paramedics, and other first responders. We thank you for each and every one of them, and we pray that you would be their constant companion and guard. Lord, we know that they have all accepted the call to serve a cause greater than themselves. In doing so, they are following the supreme example of your Holy Son, Christ Jesus, who always placed the well-being of his followers over his own. We pray that our first responders will enjoy the blessing of knowing that you are not only their strength, but their Savior. We pray that the peace of Christ that passes all understanding would enable them to be strong in their work and service. We pray everything we do and they do would serve to bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you that you have given us a part in your great work. All this we ask in the name of your precious Son and our Lord, Christ Jesus. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.